You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. It's good to see you all this evening. And just as a reminder, uh, we've said all along since we started once again meeting again here in person uh, that there are many different reasons why some folks might choose to stay home and continue to join us on Zoom. And one of those reasons is that we are not providing children's ministry. So just want to keep encouraging the rest of you to be patient with those who are here with small ones. Uh, a, a couple of you, I think, are here for the very first time in person. So we're thankful and good to see you guys here. But uh, they really want to be with us in this gathering so we can be patient with uh, some cries. We're glad y'all are here. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the, the service. Uh, many of you already know this, but I wanted to pass along a small personal update uh, for the rest of you who don't. Uh, this is totally related, somewhat, uh, to Habakkuk 3, so hang in there with me. But next month, I'm going to officially enroll into uh, the Early Modern History doctoral program at the University of Leicester in England. Uh, this is going to be a part-time international PhD that I'm going to be starting, uh, so it won't change anything about my role and responsibilities here in Albuquerque and at Christchurch. I was planning on, likely over the next four or five years, going to England w- once a year or so during the summer for a couple of weeks at a time to meet with my supervisor to research. Uh, now with COVID, who knows if any of that's going to happen, but uh, what in the world? Well, why would I want to do this? Uh, well, one, I've just always really, really loved history. Uh, growing up as a kid, if sports weren't on, my dad and I were watching the History Channel. I can remember as early as a middle school kid and then on through high school and college, just most leisure reading that I did uh, was some sort of history. Uh, And I think as 21st century Westerners, we can tend toward thinking that we just plop down out of space and that like our desires, our uh, proclivities, our philosophies, our instincts, uh, even our theology is just pristine and just the way that it is because it is the way that it is without thinking of the ways in which Uh, Those who have come before us have shaped and fashioned those things. So I want to continue education and research because I just love it, and I think it's a a better understanding of history helps us to better understand and live in the present. But then second, my actual project is going to be researching the congregational life of one specific Baptist church in London. Uh, From 1676 to 1713, this particular congregation kept uh, the minutes book of every single church member meeting that they had. Uh, So I'm reading and transcribing a handwritten minute book of every single new uh, baptism, every single new membership, every discipline case, every financial transaction, uh, the uh, transition from one pastor to the next after one of the pastors died, all of this. And so one way to better pastor in the present is to better understand pastoring in the past. Uh, These 17th century Baptists were debating and thinking through many of the same issues that we are thinking about and debating today. Uh, I even wrote a little bit this week on how Baptists in the 1650s were considering and thinking through if and how much they should submit to and obey governing authorities and their directives. Uh, These are important and relevant issues. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about our life today and just the entire Christian life. The Christian faith is a religion that is founded on its assertion that God has actually acted in time and space, that God has 
made himself known, and acted in history. Christianity is unlike Greek myths. It is unlike Hindu myths. It is even unlike many Native American origin myths. Christianity is unlike Mormonism, which claims to be found, founded on historical events, but then history and archaeology completely discredit these claims. In fact, unlike Mormonism, which sticks its fingers in its ears and argues that even if history and archaeology discredit some of their claims, it doesn't take away from what I might experience and feel, like the so-called burning of the bosom, about this emotional feeling that I get uh, that God has given me through uh, that religion. But the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus was not raised, if his resurrection wasn't a flesh and blood historical event, and the rest of the Bible wasn't trustworthy in history, then all of this, all of our lives as Christians would be worthless, and our lives would actually be, uh, we, we, we should be pitied by those who do not believe what we believe. We Christians would be stupid to keep living as if all of this were actually historically true. And so the Christian faith, built upon the action and the promises of God in the history of Israel, then culminating in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah as the fulfillment of all these promises and then handed down once and for all in history by actual humans, the apostles, and then the work of the Spirit that now assures us that because, that because God has powerfully and faithfully acted in the past, we can now entrust Him with our future. In that sense, we find ourselves in almost identical situations in context with Habakkuk. Certainly different, the context is different, and we find ourselves uh, on different points of the timeline and God's action in history. But Habakkuk is going to model for us in chapter three the way of deepening faith. We're going to finish this book, divide this chapter three into two halves, the way that Habakkuk's prayer and song is actually divided looking back in history, and then looking forward to the future. So two halves that we'll title tonight of choose to remember, looking back towards the past, and then choose to believe in the present and towards the future. Choose to remember, choose to believe. First of all, choose to remember. In light of everything that we have thus far considered in these first two chapters, Habakkuk slows down and then once again turns his attention to God. Despite the wickedness of the people, his people, despite God's confusing answer that he would then use the more wicked Babylon to judge their wickedness, finally Habakkuk has arrived in like a fairly decent theological headspace. But it'll get even better as the chapter progresses. He's in a good place, a place that's been coming, because he's finally been humbled. The first two chapters were all questions, even some objections. We shouldn't quickly denounce these as wrong or as faithless. It was theologically working through these questions and objections that God actually brought Habakkuk to where he was, where he is and will be. But one commentator says this, neither contemplation nor worship of the living God can take place while mortals are still proudly projecting themselves as equals or advisors to the Lord of the universe. We cannot get to a place of worship if we are projecting ourselves as equals or advisors to God. And this is true for Habakkuk. It's true for us. Learning to lament is difficult. And like we thought through two weeks ago, it's like 
walking carefully through an icy sidewalk. We must deliberately look for solid patches amongst the danger. We can bring our difficulties, we can bring our struggles, our questions, our complaints to God in an ungodly and a proud way, like in a way that is, what are you doing? Like, this is wrong, and I would totally do this differently if I were in charge. But if we do this, we're still projecting ourselves as equals or advisors to God Almighty. Or, in humility, to share Tim Keller's line for like the millionth time here, uh, we can be sure that our prayers would be answered precisely in the way we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. In humility and understanding our place as not God, we can be sure that God would answer our prayers in exactly the way that we would indeed do ourselves if we knew everything that he does. And so Habakkuk is finally close. He's close to getting there, but he's not quite there yet at the beginning of chapter three. He has definitely like popped open the camping chair and parked himself down in defiant faith, overlooking the coming storm. And he begins to pray. In verse two, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk tells God that he has heard of God's works in the past, and now he wants God to once again act again. He has done incredible, incredible things for his people in the past, but now revive that work, bring it back to life. Bring that work and your people back to life. In your right and just wrath, he also then says, and also if you don't mind, could you please also remember mercy? But then the object and even the tense of the prayer changes. In verse three, while totally, totally still a prayer, it changes from the second person, you, O Lord, to then the third person, that God came from Taman, the holy place, the holy one from Mount Paran. Again, he'll kind of go back and forth in between he and you, but from now he, he's going into verse, or the third person. And what follows from verses three through 15 is a recounting of the national history of Israel and of God's powerful and faithful care of his people and his keeping of his promises. Mount Paran is just another name for Mount Sinai. And Taman is a site in the land of Edom where Israel sat poised to enter the promised land. Habakkuk is remembering the places where God had brought his people and where he had revealed himself to them. At Sinai, the Holy One with the, came with the good law for his people. He covenanted himself to them in love and in righteousness. The second half of verse three, he says, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth or, or the land was full of his praise. Verse four, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Just remember back to the end of last year, the beginning of this year when we were uh, going through the book of Exodus, of God revealing his glory to his people, of him revealing his, his weightiness, his power, his reputation, revealing himself to be the gravitational center of the universe. And out of love for his people, out of faithfulness to his promises that he had made to their father Abraham, he brought the people out of Egypt with plagues. Plagues coming behind and then plagues going ahead of them into the future. In verse 6, he, he measured the earth and he shook the nations, the eternal mountains, 
the high places of worship to idols and of the wicked gods in the land of Canaan, the Baals, the Ashtoreths, these mountains were scattered and made low. God is marching north with his people, away from Egypt, leading and protecting his bride in love from attack and from death. Even those whom he bypassed on the way, Cush and Midian in verse 7, even they tremble as the creator God of the universe. This warrior king now marches with his bride in covenant love and with an invitation to the nations to join them. But instead, sitting in their idolatry, the nations hate Israel and they hate Israel's groom. They hate her king. And so what follows from verse 8 through 15 is a poetic mix and mingle of action, a mix of phrases and descriptions from throughout the Old Testament, mostly the Psalms. Habakkuk doesn't retell every event like they might be retold in like 2 Samuel or 1 Kings or one of these historical books or something. It's not necessarily Habakkuk doing here like a a historical retelling for history's sake or something like that, but a poetic and theological reflection on God's strength, on his power and might the glory of God. And a lot of these descriptions might initially make us uncomfortable, might make us a lot uncomfortable. Like verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Second half of verse 13, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. A couple things that we considered in some of these similar texts from Exodus First, that these Canaanite Canaanite folks weren't just necessarily like just agrarian farmers just trying to scratch out a living and just trying to be left alone. No archaeological finds and written texts show that these were violent cultures. These were cultures with pervasive sexual worship to idols and oppression. They were cultures of human sacrificial systems to their gods, often with the sacrifices being of children and mostly of infants. But second, even if they were this kind of like agrarian, just trying to live my life, just leave us alone kind of culture, while the effects of their individual and societal sins may not have been as humanly devastating, nevertheless, all sin is rebellion. All sin is an eternal affront against God who created us to live for him and to love for him. So no human is owed even the very next breath or the next beat of the heart. And so every day and every second that we are given from God is just grace, is mercy. But third, God is now keeping his promise to bless those who would bless his people and curse those who would curse his people. To know and to love God in this time was to know and to love his people. To hate and attack the people that God loved was to hate and attack God. But then fourth and finally, at this point in God's unfolding plan of history and redemption, he is setting a national people apart from the world through which he would then bless the entire world. These people needed to be theologically and needed to be morally distinct. They even needed to be geographically distinct so that they might be theologically and morally distinct. And all of this was so that there might actually one day still be a children of the promise through which the Messiah would come, the one to come and live as the true and right Israel, the one who would actually live in perfect covenant union with Yahweh, the Messiah, the literal Hebrew word for anointed, the one who is set apart to accomplish God's purposes, the word that we'll see here in verse 13, anointed, 
You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, for the salvation of your Messiah. Now Habakkuk is likely thinking of David here when he writes this, likely thinking of the high point of the kingdom of God, the right worship of God. Even some of this crushing head language might reference David and Goliath, certainly some Genesis 3 language of head crushing as well. But we know from Isaiah, we know from Ezekiel, we know from many of other of Habakkuk's prophetic contemporaries that there's this growing sense, growing expectation of another David to come. A new and greater David, a new and greater David that is almost indistinguishable from God himself. A new king, the anointed Messiah that would come and then is described in interchangeable language almost as the son of God, the son of David, God himself. And so God has always been a good and faithful and true God to his people, working for their salvation, working for the glory of his own name. He is stronger and mightier than any other God and king and kingdom out there, full stop. And all of this has gotten Habakkuk to a place of silence. Through all this, he now realizes that he has no reason for objection. He has no reason for further suggestions or advice to God. He is God Almighty, who has acted victoriously on behalf of his people. And this is actually what prayer does. Many of us in our lives, especially if you've grown up in the church, have learned the helpful acrostic for prayer, that of acts, A-C-T-S, A, adoration, praising God for who he is, a great first place to begin a time of prayer, then moving on to confession, C, in light of who God is, spending time confessing to God what we aren't, then T, thanksgiving, thanking God for what he's done, and then finally getting to S, supplication, that of making our requests known to God. And supplication, making our requests known to him, is actually good and right. God commands us to do this throughout the scriptures. He not only wants to hear our requests, But he loves to hear our requests. He wants to hear and respond to the prayers of his people. But practically, how many of us and how often do we just kind of skip over the the A and the C, the A and the T? How even if we do spend time in that of like adoration and of thanksgiving, it's mostly just kind of like it just doesn't feel right to just start asking God for things. So we kind of got to, you know, spend a few minutes at least uh, telling him how great he is. It's like, while we would never consciously say this, it's like subconsciously, we kind of feel like, well, we got to butter him up a little bit. It kind of just feels icky to just approach God and just start asking, asking, asking. We know he's not a genie. We know he's not a vending machine. So we got to just tell him how great he is for a little bit of time at least. God is not fooled and God cannot be buttered. What if the time of adoration, what if the time of thanksgiving, what if the time of thankful remembrance and worshipful awe actually is the main event of prayer? What if beholding and worshiping God is what actually then shapes and informs the rest of our prayer and actually shapes and informs the requests that we actually bring to him? What if we were disciplined each morning to first, not only just actually 
remind ourselves that God exists and that he is there and not just move along in our day with the forgetting that he is there. But then what if we considered how not only the ways in which he has been good to us, though certainly, but the ways in which God is just good inherently, whether or not he does respond in ways that we would interpret as his goodness. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then being drawn personally and corporately into deeper friendship, into deeper communion, into deeper joy with the triune God. I love that Michael Reeves titled his amazing little book, Delighting in the Trinity. Not using the Trinity, not getting the Trinity to give you what you want from the triune God, but just delighting in the Trinity, which may be the point of the whole Christian life. And then, maybe the things, after all of that time, maybe the things that you thought that you were going to ask God for, you actually don't want to ask God for anymore. I'm pretty sure this is what David is getting at in Psalm 37.4, where he says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not, hey, like, enjoy God a whole lot, and then he will make all of your wildest dreams come true. No. Enjoy God, and all of your wildest dreams will actually become about the kingdom of God. God doesn't conform himself to your desires, but in knowing and delighting in the faithfulness of God, your desires conform to his. Your desires become God's desires. And this is where Habakkuk is very close now to getting. And yet, even in growing in loving what God loves and then hating what God hates, life is still hard. Pain is still pain. Death is still an enemy. The floodwaters are seemingly always just barely over the horizon, held at bay by a very flimsy dam, ready to burst at any moment. Often, they do. So now, Habakkuk's model of a genuine and mature journey of faith is not merely choosing to remember, choosing to worship God, being wrapped up in delighting in who he is, but then in defiant faith, now choosing to believe. Choose to believe. You, you might expect Habakkuk to, after all that that he has now considered and written down and perhaps sung about, we might expect him to close out the book with like a dance party, like some driving bass and drums, like a blow-the-roof-off worship set of glory power, of victory. Because of God, because of who God is and what he has done, to now just kind of, even subconsciously, move towards like psychologically detaching yourself from all the problems that you know are still real. Detaching yourself from all the worry and the trouble and the distress out there. I mean, it's really not a huge deal. We might be tempted to tell ourselves Just be happy. After all, I mean, if we really think about it, there are lots of people out there that have it worse than us. So let's just tell ourselves to be happy and just remind ourselves of the power and glory of God. Yes, but no. We might be thinking that even if today really stinks, tomorrow 
will be better. We might be thinking, just hang in there, that God will provide something even better today because of the struggle of, or better tomorrow because of the struggle of today. After all, you know, if God closes a door, he'll always open a window. But Habakkuk is not an American. His song goes on in verse 16. How many times have we prayed this prayer? I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Earlier in the book, Habakkuk's problems were perhaps theoretical. His problems were theological. Now his problems are very practical and even physical. Either from being so up close and personal with the glory of God, oftentimes throughout the prophets, uh, a prophet will have some kind of encounter, some kind of worshipful experience of the glory of God and then just be left feeling sick. Or finally, perhaps he's gotten to the point where he realizes the certainty of the coming invasion of Babylon. Either way, Habakkuk finds himself weak, sick, and afflicted. Rottenness has entered into my bones. But what's his response? Is his response, what are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. No, even moving through these initial cries of lament in the earlier chapters, now through that theological reflection, Habakkuk is now into a place of a more settled faith, a more settled place of praise. Through all of the rottenness, through all of his quivering lips, second half of verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He is fully convinced of two realities. He is fully convinced that judgment and trouble are coming for his own people, and yet greater judgment and trouble are coming for Babylon. Judgment comes for his own people, but then judgment comes for the judges. God is always good. God is always right. And Habakkuk is settled in this place. But how did he get to this place of settled faith? of choosing to believe, of looking toward and forward to the horizon over the horizon, of looking forward and expecting the justice that comes after this justice. Yes, first choosing to remember, but then now actively believing. Maybe you saw in a June weekly email that we sent out uh, a link of a blog post recounting a story that Don Carson shares in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. But Carson tells the story of a a lady and her husband who are out on a drive one day, perhaps on a country road, and they come up upon a Cadillac stranded on the side of the road. There's There's a guy sitting by the car. As they approach, he is clearly frustrated. He is angry and impatient. And they stop, so they stop to see what the problem is, and it turns out he's late for a business meeting. And all that's happened is that he's just run out of gas. But luckily, uh, the, the folks, they've got, the, the man and the, the woman, they've got a, a gallon of gas in their trunk. So they fill him up, fill him up, and it turns out he's in a super big hurry because he was late for a business meeting. This is why he didn't get, fill up his gas tank in the first place. But so they tell him, hey, no, you're in a hurry, but there's a gas station two to three miles up ahead. This gas, this one gallon will get you there. 
Uh, and so 12 miles later on the same road, they come upon the man and he is stranded on the side of the road again. Cadillac pulled over on the side of the road. They pull over again, and now they find him even more frustrated, even more angry, even more impatient. What's happened this time? Well, he was in such a hurry for his business meeting, he had skipped the gas station with the very slim hope that this one gallon would make him all, get him all the way to the next town where his meeting was. How could anyone be so stupid? This couple, and we might rightly observe in this frustrated, this angry and impatient driver, until we realize that this is how many of us actually go about every day of the Christian life. So busy, so pressed for time and the next pressing event, or even the next stop of entertainment, that we very rarely stop for fuel. Myself included, often such a slave to the tyranny of the urgent, the next crisis, the next thing that's going to happen right now that needs my attention and needs my fixing. God help us. Driving around on empty tanks, just hoping that we'll get there in the end. We pass over the opportunities of feasting on God's word. We pass by the opportunities of communing with God in prayer and in reflection and in praise. Meeting with, people, meeting with God's people on Sundays, Throughout the weeks, these become events that we'll get to or we'll stop at if perhaps um, maybe there aren't other pressing priorities in life. Perhaps if I had a productive weekend or a relaxed week, perhaps. But Habakkuk doesn't stumble into this place of settled faith. He isn't just driving along with his fingers crossed, hoping that he has enough in the tank to get him there. He hasn't accidentally fallen into confident trust in God's goodness. God doesn't just zap him so that he isn't frustrated or impatient or angry. He has carefully and deliberately pursued God with careful theological reflection. He has reminded himself of God's past work and faithfulness. He has beheld God's glory and he has worshiped him. He isn't some fatalist resigned to the fact that, well, I guess I just believe that God is sovereign and what's going to happen is just going to happen. There's nothing I can do, so I guess I just got to like it. No, that's just another way of running on empty. Psychological detachment, fatalism is not Christianity, is not trusting in the God of faithful promise. The way of God's people, the model of Habakkuk, is a tank that is full there's immense trouble out there. But it isn't that way just because God is sovereign and he's not going to act or let things happen just because he is sovereign, but because he is also good. If God is sovereign but he is not good, then he may or may not be trustworthy. And there definitely isn't anything about him that is captivating or worth loving if he is just sovereign but not good. Maybe there's enough in him that is worth revering as a powerful king, but not to love as a good father. Habakkuk has gotten to a place of humble and loving trust because God is both sovereign and good, and he has come to a settled belief that that is true. So with his body trembling and his lips quivering, but his tank full, Habakkuk sings in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The end. That's how the book ends. The book ends with the land failing, either because of invasion or disease or invasion or drought, whatever it is. We don't know yet. But there is now zero reason in the world and in the circumstances surrounding Habakkuk that would suggest to him that God actually is sovereign or trustworthy or good. If he were to just look out his window, he might not come to those conclusions, likely wouldn't. But Habakkuk doesn't allow the circumstances of the hour of the year. He doesn't even allow the circumstances, perhaps, of his entire life to dictate his joy in the Lord. The past power and faithfulness of God now presently enables Habakkuk to trust him with his future because God is sovereign and is good. All of these actions of God in the past that Habakkuk is remembering and considering, all of these appearances of God, a big theological word, theophany, an appearance of God where God intervenes and appears to his people and then acts. All of these theophanies, all these times where God appears and acts were all times where Israel's backs were against the wall, where there was no hope and the end was certain. Israel sat enslaved in Egypt under the most powerful empire in the world, but God redeemed them. They were wandering in the desert without food and water and without hope, but God appeared, delivered, and covenanted himself to them. They were outnumbered by the Midianites, but God, through a tiny number under Gideon, won the battle for them. The boy King David approached the unbeatable giant, Goliath, and it was God who was his strength and victory. Habakkuk is now resigned to the reality that invasion is coming. Maybe even devastating invasion. But he knows and trusts that God will protect and save a remnant. He will keep his promises to Abraham and to David. The anointed will come. He will send Messiah. The Christ will appear in simultaneously the greatest and humblest theophany of all. The greatest and humblest appearance of God, of power and weakness, in glory and humility, in judgment and in deliverance, in death and in resurrection. The triune God of glory appears not just to Israel, but to the entire world. When their backs are against the wall and there is no possible way out, not from armies, but from sin. He appears and he dies in their place, in your place, to forgive your lack of love, to transform your idolatrous Babylonian heart, to welcome you as a son and daughter and to live at peace with the king for eternity, if you would but repent and believe. If you would turn from your kingdom to his, if you would trust God as sovereign and as good, as king and as father. Habakkuk is a book of deep, 
deep theology. It's a book of judgment. It's a book of joy. And it would do us really, really well to keep reading and internalizing it for the rest of our lives. So let me leave you today and to wrap up this whole book with this. Earlier this week, even last weekend, and even on Sunday last week, uh, I was really struggling for joy. While I have nothing to legitimately complain about, actually believing what I had preached the last two weeks of like thanking God for 2020, of, you know, the, the lessons that he is teaching us and the way that he is growing us through the things that we would have never prayed for, the reality is and, or was and still sometimes is that I do just want things to go back to normal. And so actually wanting to believe the things that I've been preaching has actually been a struggle the past few weeks for me in fighting for joy. So I've been so encouraged this week by a song by the gospel singer Jonathan McReynolds, a live version of his song, God is Good. Uh, It's just five lines that he repeats over and over and over again, uh, but that I have repeated now dozens of times this week, just on YouTube. Maybe you'd find it this week and be equally encouraged. Jonathan McReynolds, God is good. Uh, I just want to read you these five lines that he repeats over and over. And I think this is a really good summary of the book of, of Habakkuk. Christ Church, may your struggle keep you near the cross. May your troubles show that you need God. And may your battles end the way they should. May your bad days prove that God is good, and may your whole life prove that God is good. Let's pray. Our Father, we are just humbled and a loss at words that we can call you Father, that you are the sovereign king of the universe, that you have created all things out of nothing, that you uphold the universe by the word of your power, and that you love us, that you know us by name, that you know even the hairs, the number of hairs upon our head. Nothing happens in this world outside of your power and your care. But beyond all that, that none of this happens without your power because of your care. You love us as your children. Help us to believe that reality, to trust in that. Help us to not just seek to refuel and we are on empty, but to approach you and to love you and to delight in you each day of our life so that at the times of crisis, we actually have something to draw on. Help us to love you. Father, help us to glorify you in our hearts and our minds with our words to those around us. And may our whole lives prove that you are good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.